Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3, or just use this card you got on the way in. This beautiful looking card that you can keep or put up on a, uh, a bulletin board somewhere. Uh, we'll get there in a minute. But this is our final week of a series called 2020, Designing a Clear Vision for Your Life. There's a new year upon us, a new decade, and I am passionate about people growing in the fullness of God. I've experienced in my life all that God can do, and I've read about what God has done in, in folks' lives, and of course the Bible is chock full of what a life can look like revolved around Jesus Christ. We are disciples, right? That word has discipline in it. And that means we are followers of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who said to the disciples, you know, drop your nets and follow me. And so Christianity is a life where we die up front and then God gives us a life we never dreamed of. So in this series, we're kind of looking at one verse. It's amazing you could preach for three weeks on one verse. It's in Ephesians 5, verse 15, where Paul says, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fool, but as wise. We're to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And here's the phrase, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The Bible tells us that as followers of Jesus, we should, of all people, maximize the allotted time that God has given us on this planet. Now, I've shared with you in the first two weeks that the concept of time is crazy-making to me. I probably think too much about it, read too much. You know, it's just my mind's built that way. And I think we all struggle with time for this reason. We're bracketed by time, right? We live in time, but we're also built for eternity. So sooner or later, this idea of time is just strange to us. Now, most of you won't make this confession, so I'll read you Leo Tolstoy in his book, A Confession. But he speaks for all of us. He said, my question, the one that brought me to the point of suicide when I was 50 years old, was a simple one that lies in the soul of every person, every human being that's ever lived, from a silly child to a wise old man. It's the question without which life is impossible. As I had learned from experience, it is this. What will become of what I do today or tomorrow? What will become of my entire life? Expressed another way, the question can be put like this. Why do I live? Why do I wish for anything or do anything? Or expressed another way, is there any meaning in my life that will not be annihilated by the, the inevitability of death which awaits me. And I think if human beings are honest, everyone has thought these thoughts. Now, the antidote to this thinking has been kind of a hedonism, what we've been calling carpe diem, or seize the day. Uh, we're eternal, we're designed to think about God, but because man suppresses that, we've come up with this theory that that I need to maximize my days, right? Go for the gusto, fill the bucket list, squeeze all the lemon out of life. Again, just to quote great literary people because they're so eloquent with words. Uh, in his journal entry, Henry David Thoreau said, nothing must be postponed. Take time by the forelock, now or never. You must live in the present, launch yourself on every wave, find your eternity in each moment. Fools stand on their island of opportunities and look to another land. There is no other land, there is no other life but this, or like it. Where the good husbandman is, there is good soil. Take any other course, and life will be a succession of regrets. Let us see vessels sailing prosperously before the wind, and not simply stranded on barks. There is no world for the penitent and regretful. And I'm kind of 
slogging through Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. I'm not a fiction reader. But he said, you only have a few years to live, really, perfectly, fully. Time is jealous of you and wars against your lilies and roses. You will become sallow and hollow-cheeked and dull-eyed. Live the wonderful life that is in you. Let nothing be lost upon you. Be always searching for new sensations. Be afraid of nothing, a new hedonism. That's what our century wants. And if you're not in the literary world, Neil Young said, you know, rust never sleeps, right? It's better to burn out than to rust out. So this is kind of permeates the world we live in, right? And there's a biblical character that I've been drawing your attention to who kind of lived foolishly and wisely in one life, and his name was Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man ever to live. God gave him wisdom more than any other man. He wrote Psalms and Proverbs and led Israel and walked with God very wisely and redeemed the time for a while. But somewhere in his life, he became foolish and squandered that wisdom. And he writes a book called Ecclesiastes where if you're not really sure of how to read the Bible, you could take verses out of context and get confused. But the book is brilliant, and it's one of the proofs that the Bible is true because God allows a man to write a book, listen, to what life looks like under the sun. It's a phrase Solomon uses over and over again. He looked at life under the sun. Life under the sun is a life where God does not exist. It's a life we're told to live today, right? That science has all the answers, philosophy has all the answers, academia has all the answers. And nowhere is God in the picture, right? God's of yesterday. It was for the ancients, but not for today. We're modern. We've arrived. John Lennon had this kind of thinking, right? In his song, Imagine, one of the most familiar songs ever written, where he told us, you know, imagine there's no heaven. Listen, it's easy if you try. Only earth below us, above us only sky. And then he told us to imagine everybody living together, everybody having the same things, kind of a utopia. Problem is he wrote that living in a gated community doing designer drugs, right? He wasn't like everybody else. And yet this is the world around us, and this is the way we're told to live. Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA, he said, you, every one of you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. He quotes Lewis Carroll who said, you are nothing but a pack of neurons. So try that on Valentine's Day, right? Get the candy, the flowers, go to a fancy restaurant, look at your spouse in the eye and say, you are just a pack of neurons. And I'd love to say I love you, but that doesn't mean anything because it's just my neurons firing and there's no such thing as love. And guys, no one lives like that. There'd be no movies, no books. No one lives like that. Because we do love and we do think. In fact, if you want to really a proof for God, think about your thought life. Nothing else on the planet thinks. And no one knows where a thought is. You know, I've read reports of autopsies where they open the skull and the brain comes out and it's that gray matter. And we're discovering more and more about the brain, but still no one knows where a thought resides. 
And we know in the Bible, thoughts and feelings and those things are in the heart and it's the seat of the soul. And so you can go on and on with this. And Solomon looks at life under the sun and he kind of joins Crick and the others by saying, you know, death is inevitable. And so it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. It's all chasing after the wind. And again, if you don't read the Bible, you'll misunderstand what he's saying. He says in chapter 9, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Imagine reading this at a funeral. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Never more will they share in anything done under the sun. And Solomon comes up with a remedy. Everybody's come up with eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, get the most out of life. But the reason I love Ecclesiastes so much is that in chapter 3, the text I've told you to turn to, Solomon has this brief and shining moment where he doesn't look at life under the sun. He looks at life under heaven. The wisdom of God returns. The sun begins to shine. His synapses begin to fire. And guess what he writes? He says, to everything there is a purpose, a time for every season under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace. A time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to throw away. A time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love. A time of hate, a time of war, a time of peace. God has made everything beautiful in its time. This is the only funeral message I have. Every funeral I've ever preached, I've read this chapter. Because it said there's a time to be born and a time to die, and they are both normal, they are natural, it's the way of the earth. We're all going to have those days where we go to the hospital and a baby's born and we're all excited and we're all going to stand around caskets. And in between those days, there's the seasons of our lives. We're going to go through them. There's ups and downs. And Solomon says, but God is in it. And there's a God of all comfort. There's a God walking us through. And basically, Solomon's saying that the good times are way out the bad times. But this is man's all. And there's a purpose that God has. The death really isn't the end of all at all. It's actually the opposite. It's a grand awakening. That when you close your eyes, you're going to rub them, and you're going to be awakened to the greatest reality. You're going to see the world the way God always intended it. I share with you that I was in Arizona this week uh, visiting my dad. He's been there for eight years. He can't travel back because his wife is kind of bedridden. And I was just thinking of the season of life. My dad's 80, and you know he's giving full-time care to someone, and many of you have had similar situations. And, and I just thought about you know, the marriage covenant and my dad serving his wife and honoring her and caring for her. And, and these are the seasons we're called to. And, and you don't get a lot of glory for these seasons. And no one's going to write headlines, but they're so important. And so God has a purpose in all of these seasons. And we're all walking through them, but they're beautiful and they're wonderful. I've been sharing with you every week that, you know, that this idea of seizing the day, if we're not careful, it's closely aligned to biblical truth, isn't it? I mean, think about it. You know, uh, God has given us desires, talents, dreams, and hopes, right? He's given us great gifts. 
Adam was told to subdue the earth, to make something of it. Man has ingenuity and creativity, and we don't want to waste our one and only lives, right? We want to be about our Father's business. And so if we're not careful, we can look at this kind of carpe diem, this seize the day, and, and, and look at the Bible and think, oh my gosh, these are almost one and the same. And I think what we've learned over the last three weeks, there's a vast difference to both of them, right? There's, there's a tremendous difference. Um, the prayer I'm really drawn to these days is Moses in Psalm 90, in Psalm 90 where he says, Lord, teach me to number my days that you might give me a heart of wisdom. I want to stop there. Um, When Moses wrote this, I mean, gosh, he's already the greatest leader that's ever lived. And this is a guy who knew God intimately, right? He leads a nation out of captivity. Uh, The Ten Commandments are delivered to him. He is a leader of leaders. He has a backside of the desert degree. I mean, uh, and... His prayer is, Lord, teach me to number my days. You know what that means? Doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally, guys. It's like the New Testament where Paul says, I've abounded and I've abased and I've learned to be content in all things. That means contentment isn't normal. It has to be learned. And so when Moses says, teach me to number my days, what he's saying is, you know, we have to get alone with God and say, God, you've given me days. There's a beginning and there's an end, but Lord, teach me to make the most of these days, to redeem the time. And I love how he goes on. He says that I might have a heart of wisdom, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing forever with joy and be glad all our days. You know, Moses got up in the morning and he had a cup of coffee and manna, right? And uh, that was 40 years. And here's a guy who was so vision-oriented, right? You're going to come into a land filled with milk and honey. And, you know, Moses could have been strategizing and planning all day. And and to number his days and to walk in wisdom, he was just glad to sit with God in the morning. And it's kind of what we've been talking about. You know, Oz Guinness, I've been using his points. That carpe diem is redeemed, number one, when we walk with God. It's, It's the height, the end of all man's goal, is just to walk with God. I believe when you walk with God, God begins to roll out a vision for your life. Then we have to understand the times. Point two, I talked about that last week. Today we're going to talk about serving God's purpose in our generation. Uh, The one thing we all share in this room is we were born for such a time as this. We weren't born in Jesus' day or in Esther's time or King David or the future. We were born at this very time together. And the question is, how do we serve God's purpose in our generation. Oz Guinness said, Christians are a people of faith who are discerning the times and serving as partners with God to fulfill his will for their times and help to restore the world to the place he always intended it to be. You and I as believers, individually and collectively, are bringing a little bit of heaven to earth every day, and it's been going on for 2,000 years. What was the prayer Jesus taught us to say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now for years, I said that prayer was a punishment, right? You know, I confessed my sins, I said ten of those, and had no understanding what I was saying. Listen, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Well, who's going to make that happen? You and I. That's what God's called us to do. And he's called us to do it in big ways. I believe every day is set up for us to do it in the little things. The little interactions God sets up, they are designed by him. I am so confident it's true. I was really kind of set free by something Martin Luther said. It really altered the way I live life. Martin Luther said, there's only two days on my calendar. There's this day, today, and there's that day, which is the day when Jesus comes. There's this day, and there's that day. The Bible says you can't change yesterday, and tomorrow has enough trouble for itself. We only have this day. But we have to live this day in the light of that day. So you know what that means? This will free you from a lot of guilt. You know, I applaud the people who are in the game of conquering world hunger. I really am. I've seen extreme poverty. It's devastating. I am so thankful for the people that bring clean drinking water. We bring them here. We support them here. But as much as we do it in this day, we have to do all that we can and know there is another day coming when the judge of the, all the earth will set things right the way they should be. We have to live in this day, understanding there's another day coming. And you know what's cool about our day? Um, we've been praying that prayer and living that prayer for 2,000 years, and it's what has gotten us where we are. And so I kind of chuckle a little when I see people say there's no God, and yet they're still fighting for human rights. And they have no idea that the reason they're fighting for human rights is because of this was lived out for 2,000 years. It's embedded in them. It's embedded in the culture. It's embedded in our lives. Paul, when he was in a synagogue in Pisidia, in Acts 13, when he reached back for someone who served God in his generation, he chose King David. In verse 36 of that chapter, he said, David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep. It's like a t-shirt test of one of the greatest lives ever written. You want to summarize David's whole life? He served his generation by the will of God, and then he fell asleep. Falling asleep means to die in the Bible. David served a generation. You and I are stewards, stewards of time, stewards of resources. Is it possible we're called to serve a generation? I believe Paul identified with David because Paul also understood his life. He looked back at all that had happened in his life and Jesus coming to his life, and he said, I'm an apostle by the will of God, born out of due time. Paul didn't wish he was born 30 years before or 50 years later in our time. Paul said, no, this is the very right time I was meant to be here. God is using me. And he said, I'm actually torn. To die is to be with Christ, and if I stay here, I'll build the church. But praise God, his will be done. Because I wasn't in the hustle and bustle of the office this week, I was in Arizona, I could really kind of pray through things a little more. And I was thinking about serving God in a generation. I was thinking about the generation I got saved into, the early 80s. And I looked back and I thought, what, what a time it was. For any of you that remember it, it was such a cool time. Uh, contemporary Christian music was new. People like Amy Grant and Petra. And for somebody like me coming out of rock and roll, that's how I learned the Bible. I would look at liner notes and learn about angels and the judgment day and all by contemporary Christian music. Now, you look back, it's cornier than a bag of Doritos, right? But 
when you lived through it, it was amazing. And the phrase born again was new and televangelists and radio teaching and prophecy was exploding. And I look at that generation and I'm so proud of it and the ministries that started and those of us who were kind of on the afterglow of the Jesus movement, the charismatic movement, the spirit was moving and all our friends were speaking in tongues. It was just a great movement. And then a little later, men like Gary Haugen come along and awaken the world, really, really, this was way before the political world knew it, to sex trafficking, right? And all the other things, clean drinking water and all, all the things that the church has been a part of in the generation a little bit behind me. And I get to see some of the things that uh, the next generation's doing. And I look at these great men and women who have served God in their generation. Now we have a tendency to look at the big names, and I guess it's always going to be like that. And one of them is Billy Graham, right? So I was at the Cove one time at a pastor's gathering, and I had a little free time, and underneath, and on the bottom floor, they have a museum. And they have all video and pictures of all Billy's crusades, and I read every plaque and just marveled how the open doors God gave this man, it was astounding. And one of the most moving is I saw an altar call in Vietnam, uh, and I grew up, I was a little boy when Vietnam was raging, and I remember guys coming back from Vietnam with their legs blown off, and it was a very dark time. And to see these Vietnamese responding to an altar call from an American evangelist was so moving. And Billy Graham lived 100 years, almost 100 years old. And God opened doors to presidents and kings and queens. And um, Anybody here watch The Crown on Netflix? Sorry, guys, we're not going to take your man card away. You can raise your hand, okay? Uh, my wife and I have never watched a television show, never. I mean, the last show I watched was Happy Days, and you know that's a long time ago. <laughs> Tuesday nights, we all ran home to watch Happy Days, right? But then somebody got me on to the fact nobody watches TV like that anymore. You just binge watch it, right? So my wife and I are on vacation. Somebody said, oh, you'd love The Crown. And we put it on, and it, you know, we watch two, we have self-control, we don't binge watch it all the way through, we're redeeming the time. But there is an entire episode where she invites Billy Graham. She was a woman of faith and uh, they had a great relationship and you look at the open doors God gave this man, 100 years he served his generation. Then there's the man we're gonna honor tomorrow, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, one of my heroes. I've read three or four of his biographies. His dream for America, his dream for racial reconciliation, not only affected a generation here in America, but spilled around the world, all the way down to South Africa with Nelson Mandela and apartheid. He lived an unparalleled life. Most of what he believed came from the scriptures and from his parents. He was a man of conviction and faith. In his letters from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King was asked why and what moved him to act in civil disobedience? After all, we were a land of laws. And Dr. King answered, and I don't think he understood the depths of his answer. He says, the laws of a nation, if they don't align with the laws of the creator, they aren't worthy to be obeyed. Well, think of that on two levels. He said, if there are laws, there must be a lawgiver. And the laws of the land... If they don't match the laws of the lawgiver, then they're not worthy. On another level, a deeper level, you know what he was saying? 
If there is no lawgiver, then the laws we have are just laws of man, and what's the sense of it anyway? And you all know the story through nonviolence, what he was able to achieve and still achieve today. Uh, he didn't live 100 years, but he served a generation and served it well, and he gets an, a, a day in his honor tomorrow, and it's well-deserved. And then there's all the people below that, right? The people that we don't know their names, who served God in the generation, all the people that gave the missions, all the people that served in local churches, that raised the next generation. We're called to serve God in our generation. So where we want to kind of bring this in the final week is, how are you serving God in the generation that you live? How are you going to do it in 2020? How are you going to do it for this decade? How are you going to serve God for the coming 10 years that are ahead of us? Now, I've jotted three down for me. I don't have all the details. These are my three. You can copy them, steal them, get your own. We're all in this together. But here's the three I'm working on. As I enter the fourth quarter of life, I resolve to give God my very best. I want to explain this. I've lived by the scripture, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. In the early part of John, Jesus calls Peter, Philip, John, and all the disciples and he says, come, follow me. And when he says, come, follow me, what that means is, you know, you die up front, right? Unless a grain goes into the ground and dies and it'll never live. Christianity is the faith where you die up front and then you live. And I think of the extraordinary life that Jesus gave to the disciples, and I thought, yes, yeah, seek first the kingdom, and God will add richly a life that you could have never dreamed of. Now, that scripture is not saying seek first God's kingdom and your bank account will swell. That's a prosperity gospel, and it's not true, okay? But the book of Malachi, and the only thing anybody ever reads in Malachi, it's a lesson on tithing, you know, how you've robbed me, how in tithes, and, you know, open the windows of heaven. That's all anybody reads. But if you read the whole book of Malachi, it's very short. Malachi was the last prophet. There would not be a word of God for 400 years until John the Baptist. In the days of Nehemiah, the prophet spoke to the people about what we would call today sacrilege, taking the things of God and making them ordinary or profaning the things of God. Campbell Morgan in his commentary said, in its worst form, sacrilege is taking something and giving it to God when it means absolutely nothing to you. Uh, to put it in layman's terms, it's giving God the leftovers. Now the problem with giving God the leftovers is one of the principles that we find early in the Bible runs all the way through is the principle of first fruits, right? That's what a tithe is, the first fruits, or the law of the firstborn. In the book of Exodus, chapter 10, God says, consecrate to me the firstborn, whatever comes out of the womb, among the children of Israel, both man and beast. Now here's the key phrase. God said, it is mine. The land is mine. The cattle are mine. The firstborn are mine. God even said, the feast days are mine. What God's saying is everything you and I have has been freely given. We are stewards of it. And in this law of first fruits, God is saying, it's all mine. I've given it to you. Give me back the best and you'll never suffer. Give me the best and you'll always prosper. I've been thinking about ways this can be done. 
I look through the Bible and the law of the first fruits is that something given is never lost and everything that's not given will always be lost. It will never account for anything. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And like the book of Malachi in all our lives, this gets subtle, doesn't it? You know, we, we all get lulled into this. Entropy kicks in and uh, we kind of give God the leftovers and it's weird. And, and I'm not even talking about giving. Giving is just a little part of this. And so the prayer I'm praying is, Lord, how do I give you the best of my time? The first fruits of my energy, of my thinking, of my wealth, of my dreams. And I don't really know what the answers are yet. I'm still working through all of this. When I think of time, again, here's that crazy thing called time. This is why I'm so enamored by Bill Wong, who will be at our men's retreat. Bill started the public reading of scripture. He's a Wall Street hedge fund manager. Now look, Bill knows he's called to Wall Street. He's good at making money. He's good at giving it away. God's calling to work. But he carves out Wednesdays and Fridays, part of his day, to do public reading of Scripture. This is a guy who isn't waiting for retirement. He's not waiting until he solves everything in his life. No, he's stepping out now and saying, God, there's this day and there's that day. I remember when uh, I was called to full-time ministry, I had worked in the church and worked for three years. Then God finally said, no, you need to do this full time. And I remember I was seeking counsel with some friends and uh, a friend I knew said, well, you know, my plan is to work and then pastor in retirement. Now, if that's what God's called you to do, that's wonderful. I applaud that. It's incredible, right? But when I thought about that for my life, I cringed. I thought, I want to give God my best years. I don't know where this is leading. Maybe I'll be a shoe salesman one day. I don't know. I'll have to go back and wear it. I don't know how it's all. But I want to give God the best energy, the best time. What does that mean in your life? I'm trying to figure out what it means in my life. I know this. David said, I'll give nothing to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. I want to give God something grand, something great. Second thing I wrote down is, I want to stay hungry. I want to stay enthralled with the person of Jesus. I never want to lose sight of how grand Jesus is. You know, we're going through John on Sunday mornings. We'll be back there in a couple weeks. And uh, I've preached John four times. I have extensive notes. And each week I use about 15% of all my notes. Uh, 85% of it is new discoveries I've had because I want to stay enthralled with the person of Jesus. Proverbs 27.7 says, A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, even bitter things are sweet. Uh, I chuckled when Gail Irwin was here. He said, you know, our way of doing church is more aligned to the Greek theater than it is to the Jewish synagogue, and he's right. And he said, the problem with the Greek theater is it gave rise to the theater critic. That's all of you, by the way, and me at times. So now we go home and someone will say, how was church? You know, no one said that in the book of Acts. They were the church. They were in the presence of God. They were called to be together. Today we say, how was church? 
And in our environment, we have so many great speakers, so much information, so many great books. You can get to a place where you loathe the honeycomb. I thank God God has given me a hunger for his word. And, you know, but I'm like everybody, I, I can get in ruts. And so I have to find ways you know, to keep myself going. That's why last week I was so inspired by Laura and her book club trying to read 50 books. You don't need to read 50 books, but that's Laura's way. Maybe one good book, Bible reading, public reading of scripture. I want to stay in the practices that serve me well for these 37 years, that have kept me hungry and fresh. Uh, someone said to me one time, Pastor Bob, you get to do all the cool things and meet all the cool people. And I'm like, wait a second, sit down, we, we need to have a talk. I was 26 years old, my wife was nine months pregnant. I was not a pastor and God told me, I mean it was almost audible, to go to a pastor's conference in Texas. We had no money, but I scrounged all that money together. Went to that conference, met some people, put us on a trajectory for the rest of our lives. I've been doing that ever since, getting on planes, trains, the, by myself, at night, to go anywhere where the word of God is talked, anywhere there's vision, anywhere God's moving. When I go to those places, I meet people, I engage, I hear from God. I bring it back to all of you, because I want to see you grow. 90% of life is what? Show up. Go into all the world and great things will happen. So I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I want to give God my best and I want to stay hungry. Final thing I want to do is I want to set audacious goals. Now in week one I told you goals are good, they're not God, okay? But you do need to set goals. If there's one thing I've learned about life, you will never achieve the goals you never set. Right? I, I mean, I will write you a prescription. If you don't set any goals, you'll never achieve them. And you know what will happen? It'll be 2030. Can I show you something pretty cool? Look up on the screen. Uh, back in 2015, we crafted a 2020 vision for our church. Came out of prayer and fasting and seeking God, and we said, what's God have for our church in the next five years? When we wrote it, it was right about 2015, 2016, and we thought, like, to accomplish what we we're going to do, uh, we would do a couple things. We had a ministry training. About 300 people went through this training. It was a year long. Many of our leaders came out of that. We started Calvary Campus to build discipleship. Took about 500 people through Financial Peace University to free up debt so we could give more and uh, built a phase two addition to this campus. That was no easy task. Uh, we built a cafe and multi-purpose rooms for teens and such, and paid for it all in three years. We took out a construction loan. At the end, we told the bank, thanks, but no thanks, it's all paid for. And uh, we accomplished that goal. Here's what's weird. Look way out of 2020. We were supposed to start a school this year. But God stepped in and told my wife, no, start it in 2018. So we kind of flipped the extension campus and started the school, and that's going great guns. Kind of moving the extension campus to 20 or, 20 or 2021, if that's God's will. We have not started a gateway church. We have done and are doing regional conferences. Now, 
God's not all about strategic plans and goals, but they are important. And a lot of you will go to James and say, oh, yeah, don't say you're going to go to such and such a city and make a prophet. That's not God. No, it says, it says, if the Lord wills. It doesn't say you shouldn't plan. The wise man plans ahead. It says, if the Lord is in it. And, and then there's the idea of God redirect. God, if this isn't of you, redirect, give us new plans. Uh, goals are important. And I'm in the process of setting my goals not only for this year, but the next 10 years. As I enter the fourth quarter of life, I'm saying, God, I want to give you my best. And God, 10 years, God, what, what might my lo- life look like in 2020? Now, we've talked about our individual lives. We're talking about the church I don't know how much you guys read or hear, but has anybody heard this idea that the church is dying? Church is in decline. Anybody hear that kind of stuff? It's all over the place, right? Young people are leaving in the droves. Uh, This generation is not going to give like their parents have given. Um, And on and on and on, right? Now, in April, we'll be in Israel. And one of my favorite places is Caesarea Philippi where Jesus takes the disciples to a place literally called the Gates of Hell. It's in the north of Israel. It was an area that was thoroughly pagan. There were grottos to Athena, Nike, and other gods there. The god Pan resided there. And Jesus takes his men out there, and he says, Who do men say that I am? And Peter has that great revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the the headwaters of the Jordan River start there, and there's a big rock enclave there. And Jesus, Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And listen to what Jesus said. And the gates of hell. Every form of paganism, every ism will not defeat the church. The gates of hell, the church will prevail. Now, when I get there, I'm pretty sure I'll remind everybody, Jesus didn't say, look, the gates of hell will not prevail until 2020. When a young generation finally gets it, that everybody before them was wrong and now they've arrived. Like Michelangelo and Galileo and the greatest thinkers who have loved God and served God, now this generation in 2020, they get it. There's no God, and they're leaving in droves. There's a very credible book out called The Myth of the Dying Church. The reason why I say it's credible is the researchers did a fabulous job. And guess who writes the endorsement? Harvard University. Harvard University said intense religion in the United States is persistent and exceptional in ways that do not fit the secularization thesis. In other words, what you're hearing is not true. That's Harvard. Baylor's Rodney Stark has done extensive research, and he wrote a book called What Americans Really Believe. Stark explains this same effect, young people leaving the church, can be found in every national survey of church attendance ever done. Young people have always been less likely to attend church than older people. They go to college. They get busy. They're not married yet. Sometimes they leave their family and their family's church. They move away. There's a lot of reasons. Stark adds, young adults haven't defected from the church is quite obvious from the fact that a bit later in life when they're married, especially after children arrive, they become more regular attenders. This has happened every generation. He fills the book with statistics and charts. Wheaton College Ed Stetzer, again, 
has done amazing research. Uses the University of Chicago's universally respected general social survey. Here's what it says. If you look at young evangelical adults, 18 to 29 years old, we are at the highest reported level since 1972 of regular church attendance among this group. He's saying it's exactly the opposite. There's greater attendance. Now, what about the dying church? According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon Cromwell University, from 2000 to 2017, Christian denominational growth, evangelicals, 43%. Pentecostal charismatic, 45%. Independent churches, 45%. Protestants in general, 32%. Roman Catholic, 20%. Pastor Bob, that's global. What about America? Let's just look at megachurches. Five-year period, the last five years. 12% of megachurches increased their attendance from 2 to 9%. 39% of megachurches increased their average attendance from 10 to 49%. 19%, one-fifth of megachurches increased their average attendance from 50 to 99%. The myth of the dying church. Time magazine said in the 60s, God was dead. Now they're saying the church is dead. Jesus said the church will always prevail. I'll go with Jesus. Now, I get it. He said, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? And so there is a remnant. I get it. I used Oz points, so I'm going to quote with Oz, and he really is the great Oz. He sums it up by saying, until that great day, our enterprises must be rooted and anchored in humility Remembering that our best judgments and our best efforts will one day be under judgment themselves. But while our days on the earth may be short, our best understanding faulty and our noblest endeavors often incomplete, we are still to choose life, seize the day, redeem the time, and seek to serve God's purpose in our day. Then the way we die will be the natural expression of the way we have lived. And both living and dying will demonstrate the faith that has inspired us. Then, too, whatever the period of history we are called to live in, arduous or easy, we may join in the ancient Jewish prayer from the time of Maccabees. Privileged, O Lord, are we to live in this generation.